Good morning again. Welcome back. I invite you to come find your seats and we'll come back together. Hi. <laughs> uh, good morning again and a very happy Pride Month. Woo! Uh, so, as you're probably aware, every June, our nation marks the anniversary of Stonewall. Uh, when the queer community in New York City protested the violence and discrimination and abuse that they were suffering from law enforcement and from the city. And so Pride Month is a time of joyful celebration of the welcome of every individual's unique humanity. And it's also a time of grief and lament. So let's acknowledge that as well, that 50 years after Stonewall, the queer community here in Texas is still being legally denied the freedom and access to health care. That's a basic human need. And so we're still advocating for that. So uh, I invite you just to join with our community if you're in town this month and looking for ways to advocate and celebrate the spirit and strength of Queer Austin. I encourage you to check out the special events page uh, at the city or at the Austin Public Library. Um, the library is hosting a Pride Prom on June 16th and a Pride-themed silent disco on the 24th. And, uh, and also, please help us spread the word uh, if any families of trans youth uh, in our community are needing financial assistance to travel out of state to access needed health care, uh, Vox can help through our Good Neighbor Fund, as Olivia shared earlier. So please help us spread the word about that. Uh, it's so, so good to be with you here this morning. And uh, our text for today is fitting for this season. It's a scene that invites us to notice what helps us feel welcome, like what helps you feel as if your full self is welcome somewhere. So we'll be reflecting on the relationships in our lives with God and with one another and how it feels to have our whole self be welcomed by someone. And we'll notice that the experience of feeling fully welcomed has the power to transform our suffering. And when our suffering is transformed, through a welcoming relationship, our unique calling, which is to say the unique form of good we can do in the world begins to take shape. So uh, we might begin today by thinking about what helps us feel welcome somewhere. So when have you been made to feel welcome or when have you perhaps been made to feel unwelcome? somewhere. And what does that feel like in the body? Let's just begin to notice that and connect with that. Uh, have you ever been a guest at a dinner party where <laughs> there was conflict or tension around the table? I know it's that laughter that like is from a cringe place. Uh, and I know it's, this can be a tender topic. So while you're thinking about that, here's a more lighthearted example just to get us started today. Uh, this is a scene that makes me laugh. It's from the movie Step Brothers, and it may help us begin to connect with what it's like to feel wanted or unwanted somewhere. So here's the scene. Take a look. Oh, that's enough ketchup. Come on. Yeah. I like it. That's enough. You might want to try this. I make a... Sauce, we call it fancy sauce. Mm -hmm. For me. 
that um, Brennan really likes with his chicken nuggets. It's my fancy sauce. Well, when Brennan finishes, um, I'll give you some of this, and it's it's ketchup and mayonnaise mixed together. So, mm -hmm. so good. I want some fancy sauce. Yeah. I'm not done using it. Looks good. Can I have fancy sauce? Of course. <laughs> of course. I'm, I'm using it right now. Okay. So let's just we'll try to. Let's just let him try some. Yeah, I really would like some. Just one last spoonful. I think you got got enough there, Brian. So here you go. Thanks. It's uh, ketchup and mayonnaise. Ugh. Uh, uh I don't like it. It smells weird. I'll okay. try some. You want yeah, some? Sure, absolutely. Okay. You don't mind, do you, Brennan? You know. Okay. Brennan. I'm not comfortable. That's okay. Brennan. No, that's okay. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. Why don't you stop being so confrontational, Dale? I'm not the one staring at me. <laughs> so what helps you feel welcome <laughs> somewhere? Um, in contrast to the scene we just saw, <laughs> is there a person or a group of people who you have experienced welcoming every part of you? And how do they communicate that to you? Is it through something they say, something they do? How do you know that a person welcomes you and celebrates and wants you to fully be you? So I'll invite you to turn to your neighbor and ask them this question. What helps you feel welcome somewhere? And I'll give you a moment and then we'll hear your responses. Let's hear in a word or a phrase, what came up for you as you were listening to your, your neighbor share what helps us feel welcome somewhere? Just call it out in a word or a phrase. Let's see if there's a common theme. How do you know when you're welcome somewhere? Curiosity, great word. Smiling, greeting, good. Snacks, <laughs> someone's willing to feed you. Yes, good. One more. Adaptability, being able to be flexible with diversity, wonderful. Um, I'll share with you an example that came to mind for me. This past March, Christopher, our pastor of teaching, and I, and the wonderful kind person that I'm dating, Austin, uh, the three of us visited Syracuse, New York, where we stayed at a place called the Bethany Center for Nonviolent Theology and Spirituality. And uh, we've got some images here. Um, one of these is a moment around the table with Christopher in conversation with some of our friends there. Our hosts that week were Tony and Linda Bartlett. Tony is an author and a theologian who writes about the nonviolence of God. And I encountered Tony a few years ago after Waylon shared a quote from one of Tony's books one Sunday in a homily. And none of us can remember the quote or the book. <laughs> but when I heard Tony's words that Sunday, um, I immediately recognized the nonviolent image of God that he was describing and uh, how different that idea was from what I had grown up with. And so I went home, I did some digging, I found a contact for Tony Bartlett, and I asked if he would Zoom with me. And that was the beginning of what has become a wonderful friendship with their community. I visited them several times. And this past March, when Christopher and I were there, we shared an evening with members of the Center for Nonviolent Theology and Spirituality, along with the Turkish Sufi community in Syracuse. 
And it was a rich experience of interfaith dialogue about trust and peace. And this question, how do we help one another sustain a nonviolent practice? So many in the Sufi Muslim community are refugees who have survived torture or witnessed others that they love being tortured, and their community is committed to nonviolence. And that's something I know many of us also aspire to. And I'm persuaded that our ability to embody that value, it all comes down to the quality of our relationships. Experiencing a welcoming relationship with God and with one another and in a community like this has the power over time to transform our pain and suffering and give us a solidified sense of our unique calling in the world, who we authentically are. And that confidence and grounding is what enables us to embody our highest values, like empathy and compassion and trust and peace, even toward those who would do us harm. So that is the radical potential outcome of a welcoming relationship. So... Vox, friends, how do we learn to truly welcome one another, like every part of us? That's the big question we encounter in this scene in Matthew chapter 9, which opens with this. As Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So imagine with me this scene at the start. Jesus and his disciples and many friends and loved ones are sitting around the table enjoying a meal together. It's the kind of evening where guests are feeling relaxed and free to be fully themselves. That's what I often experience sitting around Tony and Linda's table in Syracuse. There's laughter and storytelling and it's a welcoming dinner party. Um... Earlier this year, we hosted a dinner party for Harmon and Jen to thank them for their years of service on staff at Vox. Satin gave us their entire restaurant for the night, and Waylon got Harmon there under the premise that they were celebrating Waylon's birthday, which had been months prior but hadn't properly been celebrated. And uh, Harmon was so eager to finally celebrate Way that Harmon had spent the entire day going around Austin seeking out Waylon's favorite boba tea places and surprising him with something like 12 different boba teas. So when they finally pulled up that evening to Sauten, Harmon thought they were just there for like a quiet dinner for Waylon's birthday. And Rachel managed to capture the moment Harmon realized the dinner was actually for him. So take a look. I 
<laughs> if you couldn't hear what Harmon said at the end, he said, y'all already did something for me. And, <laughs> and people responded, it's not enough. It will never be enough. It's such a joy to express to one another how much we love and appreciate and welcome every part of them. And that's the rare gift of a community like this the possibility of truly being known over many years and not just our polished selves, not just our pretty parts or our put together parts, but our whole selves. And Jesus sat at dinner in the house and many tax collectors and sinners, people not used to feeling welcome. They came and were sitting and eating and drinking and enjoying being fully and authentically known with Jesus and his friends. And then the religious authorities interrupted this warm and loving dinner party with a question that's really a poorly veiled threat. Why does he eat with them? They don't belong here. What is wrong with Jesus that he would welcome people like this to the table? So let's just notice how these questions feel in our body. Religious Questions like these, which are really statements, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. Questions like these are precursors to violence. And in today's day and age, questions like these lead to the enactment of laws that end up costing people their lives and the lives of their loved ones. And in Jesus' day, questions like these haunted Jesus and his friends and ended up pursuing Jesus all the way to the cross. So in the words of N.T. Wright, layer upon layer it comes, dense and rich, echo upon echo, illusion and resonance tumbling over one another, a crescendo of questions to which in the end there can only be one answer. Why are you speaking like this? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who are you? Why do you not follow the traditions? Why are you behaving unlawfully? By what right are you doing these things? And then finally, too late for answers, but not too late for irony. Why don't you come down from that cross? And Jesus had his own questions. Who do you say I am? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Couldn't you keep watch with me for a single hour? And finally and horribly, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? The reason there are so many questions in both directions is that as historians have concluded for many years now, Jesus fit no ready-made categories. Jesus fit no ready-made categories. And yet, under stress, our brains crave a category. We become lazy and we long for there to be a complexity reducer. Rigid categories that box people in with rules designed to coerce and control, those rules are like candy like a sugar rush for brains under stress. But it's starvation for the one whose complexity is being reduced to an artificial category. So what nourishes us instead on all sides is to slow down and really listen to each person, to become curious about the exquisite and unrepeatable singularity of every miraculous individual. And that is a much harder thing. It takes time, it takes a working brain, it takes creativity and contemplation, and it requires the creation of a common table. So Vox, how might we 
help to create a common table. And looking around the table we have created this morning, who's missing? Whose presence here would enhance the complexity of this beautiful community? And whose body might be nourished by us if they knew without question that they were fully welcomed and celebrated in this space? Our text continues with Jesus saying this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So this is Jesus's response to those in positions of religious and political authority who are abusing their power to make the vulnerable feel unwelcomed and unwanted. And I want to ask us to listen for the playfulness and the challenge in Jesus's voice, which may come through even better in the original language. So the word in English here for well means in the Greek to be powerful. And so Jesus here is contrasting the powerful, the religious authorities with those who are less powerful. And the word here translated as sick in the Greek means those who are suffering, who are experiencing grievous harm at the hands of their oppressors. And he says, these are the ones in need of a physician, a healer, someone who makes us whole again by welcoming our full selves. So Vox, how are we practicing that form of radical welcome? (laughs) By inviting the powerful to join us in centering the needs of the vulnerable. And when have we seen that done well? And when have we seen it done poorly? Uh, in thinking about that question, I keep going back to um, ever since our API care team here at Vox and our embodied justice leaders here at Vox uh, screened a film here at Vesper a couple weeks ago of the film Chinatown Rising. And I've been thinking back to this one particular scene in this story. So the filmmakers were documenting the advocacy efforts of the Asian American leaders in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. The community was facing severe housing shortages because the rights of white property owners were being denied to the Asian American community, which restricted them from being able to live and move about freely in the city. So Asian American homes and businesses and schools were restricted to this a quarter by a half mile rectangle of Chinatown, where at at times upwards to 30,000 residents were crammed Elderly families, children were crammed into this 24-square block rectangle. In a span of about 15 years, Asian-American leaders, many young adults, like in their 20s, they effectively staged a series of nonviolent protests that eventually expanded housing for Asian-American seniors, and they reversed policies in the public schools that uh, eventually allowed children to learn in both Chinese and English language. The wealthy white residents of Knob Hill in San Francisco could have come alongside the residents of Chinatown and advocated for those basic human rights, but instead they made it harder every step of the way. They complained that the expanding of the senior housing complex would block their view of the city. They, they stopped that project from moving forward for uh, quite a while. And meanwhile, thousands of elderly Chinatown residents were evicted and forcibly removed by law enforcement and put out on the street with no safe place for them to go. 
the film Chinatown Rising tells the story of a community's self-determination and resilience and ultimately the success they achieved that is possible through relentless organizing and peaceful protest and nonviolent resistance. And at the same time, that strength and resilience and relentlessness, it comes at a cost that no one should have to pay. No one should be forced to witness violence being inflicted on their children or their elderly parents. No one who is being forced to organize and protest and resist their own oppression should have to do that alone. So how are we as a community practicing welcoming those who are suffering oppression in our neighborhoods, in our community? And how solid is our alignment with the vulnerable? How confident are we in welcoming the wealthy, the powerful to the table to join us by insisting that they center the rights and needs of the least powerful among us? How clear are we that that is what we mean by the practice of welcome? Our text wraps up with Jesus saying this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So we're going to close with this, this powerful, really precise quote of Jesus. It's a quote from Hosea chapter six. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is signaling to the religious and political authorities of the time that they are falling once again for the trap of reductionism. They are making God over in their own image. And when we do that, imagining that God is pleased with our self-defined categories, violent sacrifices, in Jesus' time, the slaughtering of lambs and doves as a misguided attempt to purchase God's forgiveness, in our time, the scapegoating of the vulnerable women, queer individuals, immigrants, in a misguided power grab to circumvent God's welcome, that system of sacrifice, which calls upon twisted theology to serve the private agendas of fearful leaders is as, as pervasive now as it was then. And yet throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we hear the holy prophets reminding people, no, this is not who God is. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. No living being needs to suffer in order for someone else to live. So just notice with me, we hear this from the prophet Hosea, also from Isaiah, in the book of Proverbs, in Psalms. We find this in the book of Micah, in the prophet Joel. We hear this from Amos and from 1 Samuel and in Jeremiah. Nearly every prophet in the Hebrew scriptures has this one singular message to the powerful. Stop your sacrifices. God does not desire violence. No living being needs to die. No animal, no human, nothing needs to suffer so that someone else can live. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Hebrew, this word mercy is often translated as compassion, as in the willingness to suffer with someone. 
And in Greek, the word is also often translated as compassion or kindness toward the suffering, towards the miserable, with a desire to relieve their suffering. That's the power of a welcoming relationship to transform the suffering of one another. So I'll leave us with one final example as we close. When Christopher and Austin and I were in Syracuse, we listened to the Turkish Sufi community share about the violence their members have suffered in speaking out against corrupt practices of those in power. And what I'm about to say comes with a content warning. Some of the stories were graphic and difficult to hear. Members of their peaceful, nonviolent Sufi community have been rolled up in carpets and set on fire. They've been tied to trees and made to watch their daughters be raped. They have had boiling camel innards dumped on their heads. They've been tortured for decades. And yet their community is committed to nonviolence. In all the years of violence toward the Turkish Sufi community, there has not been a single known incident of violent retaliation. So let's just take a deep breath and... Yeah, allow that to move through our bodies. Martin Luther King Jr. once preached a sermon in the 60s at Temple Israel in Hollywood. And on that day, he said this, maybe the world is in need of the formation of a new organization, the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. Persons who will be as maladjusted as the prophets of old who in the midst of injustice would protest the oppression in ways that echo across the centuries, a holy madness, if you will. By welcoming those who were not traditionally welcomed, Jesus embodied a holy madness. By creating a common table, Jesus modeled for us a way of nonviolently exposing the twisted roots of oppression in the world. So Vox, what holy madness are we called to? And how might our practice of radically welcoming every part of us and constantly expanding our common table, how might that practice become our unique expression of goodness in the world? I don't know the answer, but I'm living that question with you. And I'm joining you in my commitment to practice that welcome, which makes radical change possible. I'd like to leave us with a poem by the Persian poet Rumi, who inspires the nonviolence of the Turkish Sufi community and who was himself inspired by the nonviolence of Jesus. Rumi once said, Jesus was himself a miracle, a human being entirely lost in his love of God. So in the words of the suffering poet, inspired by Jesus's radical welcome. I gave my word at the outset to give my life with no qualms. I pray to the Lord to break my back before I break my word. How do you dare to let someone like me, intoxicated with love, enter your house? 
you must know better. If I enter, I'll break all this and destroy all that. You have set up a colorful table and asked me to your feast, but punish me if I enjoy myself. What tyranny is this? You mustn't be afraid of death. You are a deathless soul. You can't be kept in a dark grave. You are filled with God's glow. In the name of God who welcomes you, Christ who knows you intimately, and the Spirit who invites you to the table. Amen.